Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. This week's Parsha is Bechukosai. It's a difficult Parsha. The basic theme of the Parsha is the contract that God makes with the Jewish people. And that contract has two parts. In Bechukosai Telechu, God says to the Jewish people, if you follow my commandments, then here's the list of all the wonderful things that are going to happen. You'll have plenty and you'll be safe and you'll be secure and everything will be well and everything will go the way you want it to go. But if you do not listen to my commandments, then, Nebuch, unfortunately, God forbid, things go in the opposite direction. Also, unfortunately, as you read the Parsha on Shabbos, you'll see the first section of the good things that happen if we follow Hashem's command is kind of like a small paragraph. And unfortunately, the next section, what happens if we do not follow Hashem's commands, is is substantially uh, longer and more detailed and certainly more frightening. So, the portion raises a number of very difficult questions. First of all, it raises the question that we have asked since the beginning of Jewish history, and that is the question of reward and punishment. We understand, and it is a principle that we are held accountable for our actions. We are rewarded for what we do right, but we are the opposite for what we do wrong. But the problem is, we don't see it. And um, it, it appears to us that people who are righteous are suffering, people who are evil are prospering, and we don't understand it. We don't see it. It's a very, very difficult question. The second problem with the entire portion is that it seems that God is telling us the reward for observing the commandments and the punishment for not observing the commandments. But all of them, everything that is listed, takes place within this physical world. Now, we understand as Jews that there's also a spiritual realm. There's Olam Haba, the world to come. There is a reward for the righteous after our physical lives are over. It's not mentioned anywhere. Why is it that this Parsha only relates to consequences within this world and doesn't relate to what we understand about the real consequences which go beyond this physical world? So, those are two very difficult questions. Yes? Does the Torah ever mention That's a larger question. It's a more universal question that almost never does the Torah. But, but here, particularly, you would expect it. But it's a wider question. Those are very difficult and very complicated questions. And I would like not to address those questions tonight. I don't have answers for them. And I'd like to leave that to the side. What I would like to address is a third problem in the portion, 
But this is more of a structural problem. Or, I guess you could say, uh, a textual or literary problem. And it goes like this. Our parsha, this parsha, is the last portion in the third book of the Torah, Vayikra Leviticus. When we get to the end of this parsha on Shabbos in Shul, we say, Chazak, Chazak, Veniz Chazek. We finish the third book and we go on to the fourth book. Every book, the definition of what a book is, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. What should be the end of the book of Ayikra? Well, the book of Ayikra is the only one of the five books of the Torah that has almost no narrative. It's almost all laws, mitzvot, commandments. So, if that's the case, it makes sense, as difficult it is to understand, and we're leaving aside the difficulty of it, but it makes sense to end this section of laws by saying, and Hashem says, if you follow my laws, this is what's going to happen, and if you do not follow my laws, that's what's going to happen. And in fact, we have such a verse. If you turn, please, to page 716. Page 716, the bottom of the page, Pusuk number passage and to my mind it would make sense as the end of the book of Ayikra. We finish the book of laws. God says what happens if we do it, what happens if we do not do it and then finally These are the laws and ordinances and teachings that God gave as a covenant or a relationship between himself and the Jewish people at Mount Sinai through the intermediary of Moshe. That's the end. That makes sense. The problem is it's not the end. Because there's one more chapter and it is a strange chapter, chapter 27, starting on page 718. It introduces, it introduces a new mitzvah that is, number one, strange on its face, and number two, what in the world is it doing here? It's like you have a book, and you have a beginning, and a middle, and an end, and it makes sense, it fits together thematically, it, it has thematic integrity, and then, on the last page, there's another page that has nothing to do with the entire story that you've been telling. So, what I'd like to do with you is to discuss what this mitzvah is and to try to understand, number one, what does it mean? And number two, why is this actually the end of the book of Ayikra? and not the verse before, which would seem to be the natural ending point. So this mitzvah, on page 718, 
is a mitzvah that we refer to as erechen. And it goes like this. Page 718, top of the page. Pasuk number one. Vayadaber Hashem Moshe Lemar. Hashem says to Moshe as follows. Daber b'nei Yisrael v'mata lehem. Speak to the Jewish people and tell them. Ish kiyafli neder l'ashem. If a person should donate or should, should express a voluntary oath of the worth of a person to God, then this is how it goes. So our sages explain what's going on here with this mitzvah of And by the way, there's an entire volume of the Talmud called Tractate Erechen to explain the details and intricacies of just this passage. So basically, the way it goes is like this. The scenario is a person who is making a donation to the Beis HaMikdash, to the Holy Temple, for the upkeep of the Beis HaMikdash. You could do the same thing to a dad. <laughs> same thing. So in today in today's dollar values. So well, it's it's in well. So a person can say the following words: Erech ploni alai. The value. Now I'm I'm using the translation, but I'm going to show you that it's not such a good translation. The value of so and so, I promise to donate to the base of English. I could say my value, erki alai. I place upon myself the oath to donate to tzedakah to the to the to the base of English, the holy temple, the upkeep of the holy temple. The value of myself. I could say myself. I could say you, I could say you, I could say anybody. Then what the Torah says is, if I make the donation using that formula, then, so how do you figure out what the my value is, your value, your value, how do you figure it out? You don't. It's categories. And there is a set amount based on gender, and based on age. So, for example, Pasuk number three, if I say, I'm a male, so if I say, my erech, I will give, or I point to one of the men here. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm past 60 years old. So I'm not in this category. You're not, you're not, you're not eligible. I'm in the next category. No, My eligible. value just went down. Ay vey is good. Ay vey. Ay vey. Okay, so I'm going to point to one of the younger men here. One of the younger men between the ages of 20 and 60. Actually, by the way, I don't know offhand because uh, I, I don't remember the, if the Gemara explains, is it, the, is it your 60th birthday or is it the end of your 60th oh, year? Because yeah. I'm just 60. I won't be 61 until... Uh, until July, so I'm not... Okay, I'm not sure. Okay. okay. I'm going to have to look into this. I have to look into this. You have to pay my Okay, but I point to a younger man between the ages of 20 and 60. Then, it doesn't matter who I point to. It doesn't matter who. Then, 
Chamishim shekel kesef b'shekel hakodesh. Fifty silver pieces. Fifty silver shekels. I could point to you, I could point to you, I could point to you. Fifty silver pieces. And each gender, age category, a set amount. It's a very strange thing. Because, first of all, there is no obligation here whatsoever. You don't have to do any of this. This is a voluntary thing. And you can give, you can donate any amount. If you want to donate 50 silver shekels to the base of English, first of all, you don't have to say anything. You can just bring the shekels. But if you want to make an oath about it, let's say you want to say it on Shabbos when you can't give the money and you want to obligate yourself. So you could say, I want to give 50 shekels. You could also say, I want to give 49 shekels. You could say, I want to give 51 shekels. You could say, I want to give 53 and a quarter shekels. You can donate whatever amount you want. Just like at the Adat. You could donate whatever amount that you want. You could say whatever amount that you want. So, number one, why is there a system of donating in this specific, it's a weird fundraising technique. I mean, it's weird. It's strange. That's number one. And then, the second problem is, why should there be such a mitzvah? I mean, what do we need such a concept for? And then, of course, the problem that we mentioned before, why is this the end of the book of Ayikra? So I want to share with you an approach. It's mentioned by numerous commentaries and expresses a very fundamental idea. This mitzvah is not about fundraising. It's not about donating. It's about people. And the concept that underlies this mitzvah is that there is a baseline value to every single human being. In other words, my value in God's eyes is not based on what I produce, what I have, what I look like. It's not based on any of the external features that, by the way, our society does value people. Our society places a higher value on certain people based on what they have, based on how they look, based on what they do. And that means a lower value on other people based on how they look, based on how what they have or don't have, based on what they do or don't do. The truth is, if we're honest with ourselves in our society, and by the way, I don't only mean the wider non-Jewish society, I also mean to point the finger inward to ourselves. Some lives, the way we act, the way we speak, some lives we treat as inferior to others, not as deserving of protection, 
or value. That's the way that it often happens. This mitzvah says that God is teaching us. That's not how God looks at us. That there is an innate value to every single person simply because every single human being is created B'Tselem Elohim in the image of God. I'm sorry, Ronnie, you look upset. It's, and it's also saying that men have an, an intrinsic value more than women. Yeah. People under 16 have an intrinsic value more than women. So, if you would allow me to leave that to the side for a moment, okay. I'm not disagreeing with you. That requires an explanation, but let me get to this part first. And this mitzvah that teaches this concept is placed in exactly the position that it needs to be placed. Because this coming Shabbos, when we read this parsha, Bukhukosai, how are we supposed to feel by the time we get to near the end of the portion? I'll tell you how I feel. Lousy! <laughs> because here's the really terrible thing. When you hear all of the, we refer to them as klolos, the curses, the, the tochacha, the rebuke that God gives the Jewish people, all the terrible things that are going to happen, Every single horrible thing that God in this parsha predicts will happen to the Jewish people has happened. Has happened within the last 80 years. So, it's happened to us. So, how are we supposed to think about ourselves if every single one of these things has happened to us in recent modern times not counting how many times it happened before, but just in the last 80 years, almost every one of them has happened. So, what does it mean? How are we supposed to think about ourselves? Have we really forsaken every single commandment that God has commanded us? Have we really been so horrible as the Torah seems to indicate as being deserving of of having this happen to us? And it's a frightening question. And the truth is, I don't know the answer. But it is inevitable that reading this parsha, hearing this parsha, will sadden us. It will depress us. It will cause us to think worse about ourselves. It's inevitable. And if it doesn't, then it only means that we're not paying attention. That's the reason, by the way, for the custom that you will notice in Shul this Shabbos, that that section is read lower and faster, as if we're embarrassed to read it, we're we're afraid to read it out loud. It's read like in a hushed tone, fast, let's get it over with. 
then comes the mitzvah of Erechen. In the mitzvah of Erechen, God says to the Jewish people, my beautiful children, even if you succeed in messing up, you're still my children, and I love you, and you are still essentially, essentially pure and good inside, even if on the outside you have managed to mess yourself up. And therefore, let me show you how pure and good you are. Because when you say, Erech Ploni Alai, it doesn't matter if you're talking about Moshe Rabbeinu or whatever person you want to discuss as being the opposite of Moshe Rabbeinu. It doesn't matter. High or low, rich or poor, smart or not, leader or not, etc. It doesn't matter. There is an innate baseline that applies to every human being. In other words, Hashem says with the mitzvah of Erechim, I am willing to search for the good within you even if it is not so evident. It does not mean that God is willing to overlook what we do wrong. The passage that we just finished is clear that God is not overlooking anything. But finding bad within us does not blind God to also finding the good. And that's why this passage is placed at the end of the Tochacha section and this is the end of the book of Ayyuk. Why do you not call people up for this Tochacha? Because it's sad. Because who, who wants to be associated with that? I want to share with you a story. Uh, two stories. Two very powerful stories. There was a very great man Rabbi Halberstin, the Klosenberger Rebbe. He went through the Holocaust, suffered terribly during the Holocaust, survived the Holocaust, and went on to recreate his dynasty. He is one of the absolute heroes of our people from the previous generation. And there are so many amazing stories about the Klosenberger Rebbe. So I want to share with you this story. This story happened just after the war ended when the Rebbe was one of the few broken survivors in a DP camp <laughs> and Yom Kippur came. So this is the first time in years that these Jews were able to gather on Yom Kippur and to observe Yom Kippur properly. But, but their bodies and their souls were in such pain 
And in the midst of that pain, Rabbi Halberstam stood up to speak. And this is what he did. He started to recite the vidui, the confessional, Ashamnu, Bagadnu, Gazalnu, that is part of the Yom Kippur liturgy. And he said as follows, Ashamnu, which means we have sinned. And he then said, of what did we sin? What could we have possibly have done to have brought this horror upon us? It's not true. Then the next word is Bagadnu. We say to God, we have betrayed you. And he said, how can we be guilty of having betrayed God? Any mitzvah that we would have tried to perform, we would have been killed. We didn't betray God. It's not true. And then he said, Gazalnu, which means we say to God, we have stolen from you. And he said, that's not true. We didn't steal anything. Everything was taken from us. How could we have stolen anything? Before, 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 before that. He's referring to the, the, these years. And he went through every word, Ashamnu, Bagadnu, Gazalnu, Dibarnu Dofi, etc., etc., the whole list. And with each one, he said, we, we didn't do that. We are not guilty of that. And the people who are listening, they're a little bit uh, surprised. They didn't exactly understand what the point was that he was making. But then he said, but we are guilty of one thing. And there are those in Auschwitz who are guilty and those in Mauthausen who were guilty. In Dachau they were guilty and in Treblinka they were guilty. We are all guilty of the same sin of giving up hope. In our pain, listen to these words, in our pain and servitude and humiliation, we accepted our tormentor's view of us that we are worthless, that we don't count, that our lives are cheap, and we are guilty of accepting those words and coming to see ourselves as they saw us for that we must repent and we must promise never again to forget that every one of us is indeed a king or a queen. That's the mitzvah there. Now I'm going to tell you another story. A very different story. This is a story that I heard from Rabbi Arya Spiro. And it goes like this. There was a school and there was a teacher, a Rebbe, and he was teaching a fourth grade class. And he was teaching Chumash. And he wanted to teach the mitzvah of Erechim. He wanted to teach this passage. So you know, a teacher needs to think of a way to make the material relate to the students. So he came up with an idea. 
And he said to his class, and it was a good class, a class of boys who wanted to study, who wanted to be good. It was a good class. He said to them, we're studying the mitzvah of Erechen. I would like to ask you, what do you think is your value? Now, I know the actual mitzvah doesn't work like that, right? It's a, it's a, but he, he wanted to make it relevant. So he, he, he pointed to, 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 he asked each one, tell me, what do you think your value is? And of course, he understood that boys would be reflecting their self-esteem, their self-image, and everybody raised their hand. They wanted to give their, their answer, their number. And one boy said this amount and this amount and this amount. And it was really kind of interesting how you could see how um, uh, illuminating the question was where each boy was really kind of revealing something about himself in discussing it. And there was one boy in the class and it was a boy who did not do so well in school. A boy who did not seem to have a very good image of himself and the teacher kept ignoring his raised hand because he was afraid that what the boy was going to say is, I'm worth nothing. And so he did not want to call on this boy because he did not want to bring up something that would be very painful. But the boy kept saying, oh, Rebbe, Rebbe, call on me, call on me. So finally he says, okay, his name was Shlomo. Okay, Shlomo, what is your worth? And you could hear a little bit, like from the cloud, a little bit, you know, chuckling in the back because the other boys knew that he didn't really have a lot of confidence or self-esteem. And then Shlomo said something and he surprised everybody. He said, my parents tell me every day that I am worth more than anything else in the whole world. That is not what the Rebbe thought he was going to hear. But you understand that a person can have an image of themselves based on what they hear from their parent. And that's true about our earthly parent. And that is also true about our godly parent. And to hear God saying in this mitzvah, you have this value and nothing you do can take it away. We end the book of Ayikra understanding that we are the most precious thing in the entire world. That, that's the mitzvah of Erechen. And that's why it is the end of the book of Ayyuki. <laughs> okay. I'd like to move to another area with your permission. <clears throat> this Sunday, Saturday night and Sunday, is Yom Yerushalayim, the 28th day of ER, 
the day that we celebrate the reunification of Jerusalem that occurred during the Six-Day War. I'd like to share with you two pieces to have a deeper understanding and appreciation of this day. (coughs) And the first that I'd like to share with you is a connection between Yom Yerushalayim and Shavuos, which comes a week later. Now, obviously, Yom Yerushalayim is a modern occurrence. There is no intrinsic connection to Shavuos other than it happened to happen at this part of the year. But there is a philosophical connection. And this is based on an essay by Rabbi Yehuda Amital, a blessed memory, that I have the privilege to share with you. And it goes like this. Let me ask you a question about Shavuos. Perhaps you thought about it. Maybe you didn't. But it's a very interesting thing. We celebrate on Shavuos that God gave the Torah, at least the Ten Commandments, the Jewish people. That really completes the process that started on Pesach of creating Am Yisrael, the Jewish nation. The creation of the Jewish nation is completed on Shavuos. And it happens, where does it happen? Well, it happens out Mount Sinai, which by the way, we don't know exactly where it is. But the only thing that we know is that Mount Sinai is in the middle of Midbar Sinai, the Sinai Desert. Not only this event, but this entire 40-year period between leaving Egypt and entering Israel, the Jewish people are in a midbar, a desert. As we will say in next week's Parsha, which is about the events that happen in the desert, by Yedaber Hashem El Moshe by Midbar Sinai. And God spoke to Moshe in the Sinai Desert. For 40 years, God was speaking to Moshe and to the Jewish people in the desert. So here's my question. Why did God decide to create the Jewish people, in a desert? Why not in a civilized place? Why not in a city, in a country, in a state, a place? Why a desert? There's no water there. There's no life there. There are no people there. The Jewish people is, after all, a civilization. We certainly have built cities. We certainly live. We live in cities. Why was the creation in the desert? So Rav Amital provides the following approach. And it's very important to think about on Shavuos. God creates a civilization, the Jewish people, on an empty page, on a bare canvas. In Rav Amital's words, neither committed nor connected to anything that has preceded it. Because Judaism, the Jewish people, the Jewish religion, the Jewish people, is in fact a revolt against everything that came before it. It is a revolution against everything that came before it. It is a revolt against paganism, 
a revolt against materialism, a revolt against secularism, a revolt against individualism. It is a revolt, a revolution against all of these isms. Judaism is a radical revolt against everything that came before it. And therefore, it had to be created in a place where there was none of that stuff. A tabula rasa, an empty blank page. We're starting fresh. And that's why Shavuos, the giving of the Torah, which is the blueprint for this new radical revolutionary civilization, is given in a place where there is nothing there before. However, on the way to the Sinai Desert, there's something interesting and almost contradictory that happens. Because as the Jews are traveling from, from Egypt to Sinai, that's the reason that we count these days, counting the Omer, is we are connecting, leaving Egypt to getting to Sinai. But on the way, they come to a place before they get to Sinai. And the Torah says the following words at this place, en route. The Torah says, Shom, Sam, Lo, Chok, Umishpat. There, God gave the Jewish people, I'm putting it in parentheses, some of the laws and judgments. In other words, God didn't reveal all of the commandments at once. There were a few that were given earlier. Well, we know, of course, there were a few that were given still in Egypt. Circumcision was commanded in Egypt. Rosh Chodesh, observing the new month, was given in Egypt. Observing Pesach, of course, was given in Egypt. So a few were given earlier. Most were given at Sinai, but there were also a few given on the way. What were these mitzvahs that were given on the way? The Talmud says, in Masechta Sanhedrin, the Talmud says, these were the Sheva mitzvahs b'nei Noach, the seven Noahide laws. You may know that the Torah actually has two sets of laws. One set of law is specifically for the Jewish people. Then there's another set of law that applies not only to the Jewish people, it does apply to the Jewish people, but it also applies to all of humanity. These are laws of basic humanity, morality, basic rules. We call them the seven laws of Noah. They apply to every human being, including the Jewish people. So, we're not really completely separate from everybody else in the world. We actually have a stake in the other societies and the other civilizations. So, there's actually a bit of tension here because on the one hand, we are part of the world. We share some obligations with every civilization. But in another sense, we are apart from the world. We have a clear table, clean, starting fresh, starting new. And there is a certain tension between those two layers. So, 
that's something to think about on Shavuos. To think about this tension between the laws of the Torah for the Jewish people and the laws for all of humanity that preceded it. But here's what I want to share with you. I have a practice. Maybe you have done the same thing. And it's something that I have done, I do, every single time I go to Israel. Every single time I go to Israel, and at least the first time I go to the old city, and I walk down the steps to the Kotel. You want to visit the Kotel? And, I'm sure you're familiar, as you're walking from the Jewish quarter down the steps, where there are a couple of people who are giving out the red threads, which comes from another religion, but it's not our subject tonight. Then there's a a spot where it's the first spot where you can see the Kotel. You're up high and you have this magnificent panorama. You see the Kotel, you see the mosque behind it, you see part of the old city, you see Har Hazesim, Mount of Olives, and all of the cemetery, the, all of the graves from hundreds and centuries. And you see the desert, the Judean hills. It's right there in your view. If you take that photo, it's right there. And I always stop there. Maybe you do too. And take a moment just to look. Just such an amazing view and to think for a moment and to appreciate. Usually, if I'm with family member, take a photo there. I probably have, I don't know, how many? 20, 30 photos, you know, my whole life at that one spot in different times. One day I'll go back and see where my hairline is, you know. (laughs) See how it improves. We'll see what happens. But from that spot, you see an amazing contrast because in one view, you see that Jerusalem is on the edge, the dividing line between a metropolis and a desert. And that spot just makes it so dramatically clear But Jerusalem is a place that for the last 3,000 years has been a place where it connects, brings together civilization and desert. And Jerusalem represents this tension of being part of the world, the wider world, and the other civilizations that also call it their home and apart from the world, the edge of the desert, where there's nothing there, even after 3,000 years. It's exactly the same as it was then. Empty, clear, no people, no water, nothing. So this idea of this contrast and this tension is something to appreciate about Jerusalem also. When we experience Yom Yerushalayim, 
it pays to think about if you've been to that spot, you remember it. But just to think about this idea, the way in which Jerusalem straddles civilization and desert and the connection that that has a week later to Shavuos. I want to share with you one more piece. Now, Yom Yerushalayim has many layers, including a layer of Jewish law. And I'd like to share that with you because I think it's tremendously important. I remember the first time as a boy I ever visited Jerusalem and went to the Kotel. I was a young boy. My grandparents took us on a trip. (coughs) And I remember that my grandparents told us we're going to the Kotel. You have to put on a special shirt. And when we get to the Kotel, we're going to tear it. We're going to rip it. There's a practice to tear Kriya. Just like, God forbid, a person loses, God forbid, a family relative. They tear Kriya in mourning, an act of mourning, to tear a garment that we're wearing. When you see the the Beis HaMikdash, the spot of the Holy Temple in its destroyed spot, because it's not rebuilt, we tear Kriya. Just out of curiosity, did anyone else ever do that? No one else ever did that. Okay. Okay. Well, um, I didn't make it up. It actually comes from the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, which is based on the Talmud, which says as follows. I'm reading, quoting now from the Code of Jewish Law. Shulchan Aruch. Haroa es Yerushalayim b'chorbana. A person who sees Jerusalem in its destroyed state, meaning not rebuilt in its complete state. First, there is a blessing to say of sadness at seeing it in this state. The Korea and a person tears Korea. I haven't done that since I was a boy. But what I have done many more times, and perhaps this is something that you have done, is when we approach Jerusalem for the first time in a long time, we haven't been there either the first time or after uh, uh, we're visiting after not having been there, and we see Jerusalem, we see the old city, we see the Kotel, we see Jerusalem, we make the bracha Shehechiyanu. Has anyone here made the bracha Shehechiyanu on seeing Yerushalayim? Okay. Shehechiyanu is a bracha that we make when we're happy. We're celebrating that we're able to... So, let me ask you a question. How is it possible that from the time that I was a boy, people were following the Shulchan Aruch, Kadu Jewish Law, which is, when we see it, we tear Kriya, and now, we, including me, including me, myself, we say Shehechiyanu. What is the... What, what happened? So let, so let me... So, so I know that you know, but let me show it to you from the 1600s. Because in commenting on the words of the Shulchan Aruch, when you see the place of the temple in its destructed state, 
What does it mean, destructed state? Says the Magan Avram, one of the classic commentators of the Shulchan Aruch, it is destroyed even though there may be Jewish people living there, but but as long as it is in control of other peoples, not under Jewish control, that's called destroyed. In 1967, on the 28th of ER, Israeli soldiers reached the Kotel and they made the, f- the famous announcement HaKotel HaHarabayit HaHarabayit Biadenu The Temple Mount is under our control for the first time in almost 2,000 years. Said Rav Kook followed by Rav Chaim David HaLevi, followed by many others, the halacha changes. The halacha doesn't change. The situation has changed. Because once it is in our hands, we control it. Now, it is true that we impose certain rules and regulations about going to the mountain, to, to climb to the top, you can agree with it, you can disagree with it, there are halakhic issues, but those are our decisions. It is under Israeli control. What the sixth day, what Yom Yerushalayim means, what that day of the sixth day war means is a shift in halacha, in Jewish law. That instead of what we were doing for almost 2,000 years, that when we saw this spot we would tear Kriya, from now on, we make the Baruch That's the halachic significance of Yom Yerushalayim. And here's an amazing thing. If you have the privilege to visit Jerusalem, we are the first generation in 2,000 years that has been able to make this Baruch Shehachiyanu at this spot. It never happened before for 2,000 years. And if a person goes there, a person should appreciate how amazing it is to live in this time of world history. A time that we were waiting for for 2,000 years. A time that we are able to see such vibrancy and growth and rebirth in all of its forms. Does this depend the t- frequency? Yes, once every 30 days. Yeah? <coughs> every 30 days, well, the like, like, should say. Yeah. Wow. The famous Pasuk in Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, the prophecy that Hashem promised to the Jewish people. And this is Zechariah, this is 2,500 years ago. There will come a time in the future when there will be elderly men and elderly women walking in the streets of Jerusalem. And the streets of the city will be filled. 
Mesachakim Birchovosel. And there will be little boys and little girls playing in its streets. That promise that God made to the Jewish people 2,500 years ago, that promise has been fulfilled in our day. And if you go to Israel today and you have the privilege to see God's promise, there are other promises that have not yet been fulfilled. Yes, that's true. But this one, check it off. That's been fulfilled. We live in a time where we have the ability, even if you're not in Israel, but you can get on a plane or you can look at a picture or you can turn on a television and you can see it. A promise that God made to the Jewish people 2,500 years, yes, done. And so when you visit Israel and you have the privilege to see that, you need to remember and appreciate that you're seeing a miracle of a rebuilt Jerusalem crowded with men and women and boys and girls playing in the streets, playing in the parks, just like God promised. And that's why we say Shechiyan. We say Shechiyanu that we have merited to live in a time to see that God kept His word. Something we waited for for 2,000 years? Yes. Done. And even if we are not privileged to be in Israel, I want to share with you something that is astounding and that also should we should have an awareness of, we in particular should try to have an awareness of one Sunday on Yom Yerushalayim. This story comes from the 1930s before the creation of the state. And it's a story concerning the Chavetz Chaim, Rabbi Yisrael Meir Kagan of Radin, who was the greatest Jewish leader in Europe at that time, the 20s and the 30s. There's a phenomenon that occurred, unfortunately, many times. But in this case, there was a young man. He had been drafted into the Russian army. And that meant no more connection with Judaism, with the Jewish people for the rest of his life. That meant he would not be able to keep kosher, he would not be able to keep Shabbos, he would not be able to do any mitzvahs, probably would lose his life. That's it. No more Judaism. People did anything they could to get out of that forced conscription, which meant complete separation from Judaism, Jewish people. That's it. Over. Finished. A young man came to the Chavetz Chaim and he said, Rebbe, I was conscripted and the way in which it's going to work, I'm not going to be able to observe Shabbos. I won't be able to keep kosher. If I do, I'll die. That I won't be able to keep mitzvot. I won't see another Jewish person. What am I going to do? So listen to what the Chavetz Chaim said. He said, listen, Don't worry about Shabbos. You're not able to keep Shabbos. If you try to keep Shabbos, you're going to lose your life. The laws of Shabbos say Shabbos is set aside. The laws of Shabbos are set aside in order to preserve life. Don't worry about keeping kosher. Just forget about it. Because 
if you try to keep kosher, you're going to die. And the laws of keeping kosher say that the laws of kosher are set aside in a threat to life. Forget about it. Don't worry about it. Don't be upset about it. Don't feel guilty. You're not doing anything wrong. Forget it. Don't worry about it. All the other mitzvot that you will not be able to do, don't worry about it. It's not your fault. You're not held accountable. It's not your fault. Don't worry about it. But he said, any moment, a moment that you have free, just think inside. Don't say it out loud because that would be dangerous. Just think to yourself a word of prayer to God. Just a word, a phrase, whatever it is. Any moment when no one notices, don't say it out loud because you'll be in trouble. Just think. And when you have that moment, face Jerusalem. Because when you face Jerusalem in prayer, you are connecting yourself to every other Jewish person in the world who is also facing Jerusalem in prayer. Wherever a Jew is in the world, east, west, north, south, all facing the same direction. By simply turning in that direction, you are connecting yourself to every other Jew and thereby you are connecting yourself to God. You will be able to maintain your connection to the Jewish people and to God simply by that action. That's all it takes. And that was when the state of Israel was a dream. It didn't even exist. But that's the significance of Yom Yerushalayim. Yom Yerushalayim is the day that we are able to celebrate what is it that connects every single Jew? We all face towards Jerusalem when we pray. Yes, I understand here at the Adath we're going the long way through China. I know. Okay. All right. I'm not going to get into that. Fine. But Yom Yerushalayim, this Sunday, is a day to focus on and to be grateful for that. And I would suggest, I suggest it to you and I suggest it to me, to take at least a few minutes. First of all, you can come here to Adath for Chakras, which starts at 8 a.m. We say Hallel to thank Hashem for the miracle of Yerushalayim in our lives. But just to take a minute, sometime during the day, to tell God, thank you for the miracle of Jerusalem in our lives today. I just want to finish with this quote. Famous quote from Tehillim. And it is the essence of what we should feel and express on Yom Yerushalayim. From Tehillim Memdalad, paragraph 44. Not by your sword will you conquer the land. And your strong arm also will not save you. It is rather God's mighty arm 
and God's mighty strength and the light of God's face that has favored us in being able to have Jerusalem.